David is the rabbi of the Jewish Cent Learning Center of New York, where he's responsible for the creative, educational, spiritual, and programmatic direction of the whole organization, not just a part of it, the entire organization. He also serves as a teacher and as a guide to students who are pursuing conversion. Shh. Last night, those of you with us heard about his uh, conversion program and why he's one of the most hated men in Orthodox world today, although beloved here in Orange County. Additionally, Rabbi Kalb is, well, you're not hated, right? It's a love-hate relationship. Do you get hate mail? Um, hate emails? Well, sometimes we get critiqued. Yeah. And, 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 and there's some negative things said about us yeah. and other colleagues involved in this work, but it always results in huge fundraising opportunities. <laughs> right. okay. really so please write horrible things on their website after the program. Additionally, don't do that. Rabbi David Kalb is the, an associate faculty member of Kalal, the National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership, and a senior rabbinic fellow at the Shalom Hartman Suit. He is, does this and that and this and that. Formerly, he was the first Orthodox rabbi to serve in a senior level position at, at a major reform congregation, which was at Central Synagogue. Um, we had that on our tour, and then they changed dates and we couldn't get in. So maybe when we go back, I think we'd like to go there. Uh, before he was at Central, he was the uh, Director of Jewish Education at Diane Second Street Y in New York City. He is uh, a, um, an author of many pieces that have been published in a variety of periodicals, including the Huffington Post. In fact, there was a piece that you told me to read about, right? Oh, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving and Okay, We'll wait on that for a few months to share with our group. Um, he received his BA through the joint program between Columbia and JTS and rabbinic ordination from Rabbi Shlomo Riskin, who we talked about last night. Rosh HaYeshiva of Yeshivat HaMiftar and Yefrat. And we're hoping to actually meet with, with uh, Rabbi Riskin when we are in Israel during our crazy trip in October. So with that, please join me in welcoming Rabbi David Kalb for his final program on his visit to Orange County. Welcome. Thank you all, and thank you all for the hospitality that I was given over the course of this trip, and particularly to um, Ari. So the topic today is critique versus the degradation and devaluation of leadership in uh, Judaism. And to um, analyze this topic, uh, we're going to uh, rely mostly, there's some other texts or some other, from some other areas, but mainly on the biblical text of the story of Korach. Um, and Korach is a very um, apt story to deal with this talk um, because it's really um, one of the earliest times um, in the Jewish canon that we see um, a major critique um, of a leader of Judaism. Um, before we talk about it, um, I don't know if everyone is really aware of this story or not. Typically, most years, this, uh, this Torah reading comes in the summertime. Um, and I think summertime Torah readings are like only known by kids who go to Jewish summer camps. You know, if like, you know, you go to synagogue, you know, during the year, I think there's kind of like a leveling off, it's been my experience, um, across the board, regardless of the kind of city you go to, reform, conservative, orthodox, reconstructionist, Jewish renewal, once like, I don't know, like Passover comes and you say, L'Shan Arabab Yerushalayim, next year in Jerusalem, you might as well say, see you in Rosh Hashanah, Rabbi, I'm done, you know? I actually knew this guy uh, growing up, um, and um, he came to synagogue really regularly every Saturday during the school year, 
But when the school year ended, that was it for him. He was off until the school year started again. And I would go up to him and say, hey, I haven't seen you in synagogue in a while. And he would say, out of school, out of shul. <laughs> so I think Korach is a victim of the um, out of school, out of shul phenomenon. However, this year, it comes up still a little bit early this year. It's going to be within June. Usually it seeps into July. But this year it comes to June, so you're going to get a head start on it, and you can impress all your friends and neighbors with your tremendous level of knowledge of the story of Korach. So to begin, uh, the beginnings of the story, which is what we're not really going to be analyzing intensely today, um, but it's necessary to kind of just know it. I have that entire beginning of the story printed out for you on pages one um, through um, four. Um, however, I don't want to read it. I think it'll take a very long time, but I think it, I just want to make sure that everyone knows the story. So is there anyone who could maybe summarize the story of Korach for us in a very succinct way? Anyone? I probably could, but I like to give, I like to give opportunities. All right, Howard, take it away. What's the basic story? The basic story is Korach is, um, challenges the authority of Moses and Aaron on the grounds that um, the God has said the whole congregation of Israel is a nation of priests and a holy nation, so why are you exalting yourselves above everyone else? Right, and, and, and then what happens in order to make this challenge you know, come to a head, so to speak? Well, um, uh, Moses says, uh, look, everyone who is... Everyone who supports Korach go stand over there, but everyone who thinks that um, God is on my side, you know, or that um, come by me and leave them standing over there. And then he says, what you're going to see is a new thing in creation, if I'm right. And then the ground opens up, and all the people on Korach's side fall in, and they go... Right, they get swallowed by the ground, which always sounded to me like a very intensely horrible punishment, beyond the fact that you would obviously suffocate to death. I think there's another statement that's made about this punishment. You're so negative, we're going straight to burial. <laughs> like, you know, skip, go, go right to jail. Like, in other words, we're not going to first hold you, try you, and then execute you. We're, you're going right in the ground. That's how bad you are. Although there was another population within the band of the rebellion that killed, got killed by fire, which doesn't sound great you know, either. Um, the other thing to point out um, about this story is that the actual methodology that was used, and we're going to analyze this a little bit, um, to uh, determine who was right and who was wrong, was they each made um, an offering. And Korah's offerings were not accepted, and Moses' and Aaron's offering was accepted. It's kind of like a duel at 10 paces in the ancient Jewish world. Yeah. The other thing that's always interested me about this is that Korach's sons start off supporting him. And then they... they, they, they well, that, we're right. not sure what happens right. except later on in right. Psalms there are some... Right, right. So we're going to get... That's going to come up today. It's great that you uh, brought that up, but we're going to get to that. Now, um, the other thing that's significant... Um, about the story on an introductory level um, is to understand, and to, I'm really emphasizing only what Howard said in his summary, which he, which he did beautifully, um, was this is not just 
a rebellion against Moshe and Aaron, against Moses and Aaron. This is a rebellion against God. Right, that needs to be emphasized because Moshe and Aaron did not like run for office. Right? The nominating committee of the shul you know, didn't pick them, and there wasn't a search committee for a rabbi and a cantor, and they got the job after applying through the placement service. Right? It didn't work like that. Who'd they get the job from? God. And quite frankly, I can't speak for Aaron, but certainly Moses did not want it. Right? So that is a real challenge, you know, not just to Moshe and Aaron, but to God's authority. If there's any doubt in our mind, take a look at page 13, source 15, Rashi, the great French medieval commentator, on chapter 16, line 7, says, on the line from the Torah, you have taken too much upon yourself. The simple interpretation is, you have taken too great a task upon yourselves to rebel against the Holy One. Blessed is he. In other words, the rebellion is... A rebellion against God. That is God's perspective in the Torah of what Korach and his band uh, does. Now take a look at page 5, source 2. We're not going to read um, the whole text. Um, I just want to point out uh, the last line of the text, text 11, and this is what... Um, Howard was referring to, right? It says, Korah's sons, however, did not die. They survived, right? They survived. And we'll talk about maybe why they survived. But beyond why they survived, there's something more significant about the fact that they survived, right? The other thing that's interesting is a text much later in Tanakh, much later in the Bible, in the third section of the Bible, the section of the Bible known as Kituvim, the writing section, in a book called Divrei Hayamim, Chronicles. If you look at line 13, it gives throughout this text the entire lineage of Korah's family. And who do we see at the end is related to Korah? It says, and the sons of Samuel, the firstborn was Yashna and Avia, right? So that means that who is a descendant of Korach? Samuel, the prophet, the judge from the uh, stories of King David and King Saul and whatnot. Now take a look at page six. And we're not going to read this text either, but I just want to point out two sections of this text. Again, it's the French medieval commentator Rashi on Numbers chapter 16, line 7, commenting on the line, you have taken too much upon yourselves, sons of Levi. It's the 10th line, if you count down from the top of that section, um, and it begins with the word, his vision deceived him, right? His vision de deceived him, referring to Korach, he saw prophetically a chain of great people descended from him. Shmuel, Samuel the prophet, who is equal in importance to Moshe and Aaron. In other words, Korach was able to deceive himself into thinking that he was right in what he was doing. Why? Because he has good yichas, right? He has good pedigree, not just from his past, 
clearly from his past he does, because he's a Levi, just like Moshe and Aaron are from the tribe of Levi. So he figures, how are they different than me? I'm a big guy too. But he also sees that in the future, he's going to have a great descendant coming for him. Now, just also looked, I'll comment on that a little further in a second, but first I want to point out something slightly different, and this relates back to Howard's point about Korach's <laughs> sons. Take a look also in the same text, text four. It's the 27th line, the one, two, three, fourth to last line, beginning with the word did not. Look at the last phrase of that line, for his sons repented. In other words, what makes um, um, Korah's son survive and not get punished with everyone else in this rebellion, right? They did tshuva. They did repentance for this um, um, act of defying God, rebelling against God, and rebelling against Moshe and um, Aaron. However, more importantly, and I think this relates to the above comment that I highlighted in Rashi as well, and into the text we saw in Chronicles, right? What's important here is that we have a lineage from Korah, and that there are people who descend from Korah. Now, the famous one that we know from the Tanakh, from the Bible, as we've already pointed out, is of course Samuel. However, out there in I don't know what you call this Jewish tradition, right? Which is a vague term when you can't really prove something in any kind of really logical way, but it's out there as a thought. There is an idea that there were other people who um, descend um, from um, 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 Korach. And the most famous of one is the Choser of Lublin. The Choser of Lublin, the seer of Lublin, was one of the great early Hasidic masters, one of the inheritors of the Baal Shem Tov, uh, the founder of um, the Hasidic um, movement. Um, and each year on Parshat Korach, um, when the story of Korach came in the Torah, he would give a sermon about Parshat Korach, and the Choser of Lim would say, I'm now going to speak Torah in honor and in memory of my altar, 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 Zaidi, my great, 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 times a million, grandfather, right? The point is that the Choser of Lim felt honored that he was a descendant of Korach, right? Now, that's, I think, a real question mark in my mind. If you're a descendant of Korach, why would you be honored by it? It's like being a descendant of John Wilkes Booth, right? It's not the kind of thing I think you'd want to write home about. It's not the kind of thing you want to brag about. And yet, we have this notion that the relatives who descended from Korach were proud of that connection. Beyond that, there's a famous story told in the Satmar Hasidic community. Who was with me in Williamsburg on the New York trip? Okay, so you, we were in Satmar country that day. So here's a piece of Satmar Torah. Here's a pair of Satmar Hasidic Torah. There's a story where um, I believe it's the third Satmar Rebbe is having a conversation with his grandfather, the first Satmar Rebbe, and um, he um, has this conversation about whether his grandfather can remember his past lives, 
right? Now, I know that sounds very bizarre to all of us, you know, but, um, you know, in the Hasidic world, things are very Shirley MacLaine-esque, right? It's very normal, not maybe for your average rank-and-file Hasid, but for a Rebbe to remember his past lives. And um, he says, Zadie, grandfather, can you remember your past lives? He goes, of course. I can remember all the way back to our patriarch, to our ancestor, to our um, relative Jacob. And he goes, who were you in the time of Jacob? He goes, I was a goat in the flock of Jacob. And there's a famous nigun, famous song that the Satmar Hasidim sing. They sing it on Motzei Shabbat, on Saturday night. And their tradition is, is that the Satmar Rebbe taught it to him, remembering his past life, when Yaakov would play the pan flute, right, to the goats to keep them kind of in line. I know it's wild Torah to you, but in Hasidic circles, this is all normal. Then the grandson says to him, and Zadie, can you remember being in the Midbar? Can you remember being in the desert when the rebellion occurred between Korach and Moshe? He goes, of course I remember. And he goes, and Zadie, you of course sided with Moshe, right? And he said to him, I remain neutral. <laughs> and he goes, what do you mean you remain neutral? Wasn't it obvious that you should have sided with Moshe and been against Korach? And he goes, let me tell you something. If you were there back then, you might have very well sided with Korach. It was a big deal just to remain neutral. What do you think? The Korach was just some bad guy? He had a point. He had a point. So I think from these two traditions, the notion of the fact that there were ancestors who were important, certainly Samuel, and at least in a tradition level, whatever that means, the Choser of Oblin, and this story, from the um, tradition of the Satmar Hasidim, right, of kind of respecting Korach, Korach has something to say in spite of the negative way he's classically portrayed in most Jewish circles. So that is what I want to try to achieve today. I want to talk about what could potentially be positive about Korach, and then where did Korach go wrong? That's the plan. So with that, let's take a look at page 7, text 5. And this is the section of the story where Korach is, um, um, it, where the rebellion is over, and it's the aftermath of what happens after the punishment um, occurs. Okay, so could someone read for us line 1, the Lord spoke to Moshe saying? Who'd like to read it? Anyone? Go ahead, please, nice and loud. The Lord spoke to Moshe, saying, Say to Eleazar, the son of Aaron the Kohen, that he should pick up the censers from the burned area but throw the fire away, because they have become sanctified. Right, so let me just explain what these censers are. They're called in Hebrew machto. Right? Those were the things that they each used to do the offering, to see who was right and who was wrong. Right? They're kind of like, um, I don't know, have you ever, you know whenever you go, I don't know if this happens in California, but like in the Northeast, this is something you do a lot on vacation and you take your kids there, you go to colonial restorations. Do they have things like that in California, or is it like too late into American history for there to be any kind of restoration? I don't know. But maybe some of you have been to these kinds of places. Last summer, my family 
I went to Colonial Williamsburg. So whenever you go to like these colonial homes, they'll show you these things called bedwarmers, right? And it's like this long brass rod with kind of this clamping device in it, and they put I don't know, some coal in it, and they light it on fire, and that would keep you warm. It sounds kind of dangerous. Maybe, I don't know how that went. Anyway, I'm sorry? Oh, warm the sheets. Okay, I don't, I don't really know. I'm glad to have heating, quite frankly. Whatever it is. Anyway, that's something that they did. So um, if you um, go, and I think Ari wants to go there on your next trip to Israel, there's this place called the Machon HaMikdash, the Temple um, Museum or Institute in Jerusalem, in the old city, they actually have reproduced um, these machtot, these fire sensors, because they want to be ready to go when Messiah comes. Mashiach, Mashiach, Mashiach. Ay, 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 ay. Anyway, right? So, right? So anyway, so um, it's this long thing, and that's what it looked like, and it was kind of like their version of a religious duel. It was like their version of a religious duel. Anyway, so... Um, what we're being told here is that they should grab and get out of the fire these machtot, these fire sensors. Interesting. Let's see why. Line three. Continue reading, please. Okay. The sensors of these who sinned at the cost of their lives, and they shall make them into flattened out plates as an overlay for the altar. For they brought them before the Lord and have therefore become sanctified, and they shall be as a sign to the children of Right, so this is really interesting. We're told that these machtot, these fire sensors, right, become holy, right, become holy. I would imagine they would be the most unholy thing you can imagine. And yet... Yeah, from the Korach people, right. I would imagine these would be the most unholy thing, you know, that you can imagine. Then not only are we told that they've become holy, but what do we do? We're supposed to iron them out, right, bang them out, and use it as a lining to what? The Mizbeach, the altar, the place where the sacrifices occurred in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle, one of the most holy sections of the tabernacle, the portable place of worship that the Jews used when they were traveling from the, in the desert from Egypt to Israel. Now, that's also very hard for me to buy because, I mean, think of all those Torah portions that you have where it talks in detail about how the Mishkan, about the tabernacle, how it was supposed to be built. No one ever falls asleep during these Torah portions in the synagogue. You know why? No one was ever awake to begin with. Literally, the only people who find these sections interesting are architects, construction workers, engineers, and interior designers. But the interior designer one and the architect one, I would put that maybe on the back burner. I'll tell you why. No one had a say in how the Mishkan was constructed. You were given exact blueprints and description of materials from the Torah, from God. There was no creativity in it whatsoever. It had to be done in an exact way, right? So here, all of a sudden, now you're telling me, right, that we're going to redo the Mishkan, right? It's like one of those design shows, right, on Lifetime TV. We're going to redo it, design on a dime. Right? And not only that, what are you going to do to redo it? You're going to bang out the machtot, the fire sensor of one of the people who created the greatest sins in the history of the Jewish people. Wild stuff. It gets even wilder. Look at line six of what you just read. And they shall be a sign for the children of Yisrael. Right? Le'ot livnei Yisrael. Now, that's a very troubling piece of language there. And you see how I underlined it both in the Hebrew and in the English. 
Why does that trouble me? Whenever you see the word ot, sign, in biblical literature, it's always something positive. It's nothing negative. Now, one could make the argument, up until I just said what I said, that maybe the reason they're hammering it out and putting it on the Mishkan, on the tabernacle, is a sign to say, don't do what Korach did. It should be a warning for you, right? That's a possibility up until what I said, what I said in line six. It could be very comparable to like, I don't know if you've ever been to London and they take you on these bridge tours and you get to that, tour, that bridge, I forgot where it is, it's somewhere in London, and they tell you, oh, when someone did something really bad, we would draw and quarter them and then we chop their head off and put their head on a spike on this bridge. It happened to that guy who, um, Mel, I know I'm not supposed to talk about Mel Gibson in, in Jewish buildings, you know, I know that's like a, like, you know, Abe Foxman will come and do something to me or whatever, right? But, you know, um, you know, uh, he, he made that movie, right, about, called Braveheart. And I, I think the guy's name was Wallace, and that happened to him. Right, what was his name? William Wallace. William, William Wallace, right, the Scottish Revolution, right? Right, against England. So that's what happened to him, right? I had a great line by during that whole thing um, with his movie about, um, you know, the crucifixion and all. I said, Mel Gibson is a lethal weapon of anti-Semitism. He has no brave heart, he has no patriot. So that went over well. Anyway, so is it, it's not like that. It's not like that. It's something positive. Because as I said, every time you see the word oat, it's something positive. Let's hold off a little bit more, and I want to say something else about that. But let's read line four and five first. Go ahead. So Eliezer the Kohen took the copper censers, which the fire victims had brought, and they hammered them out as an overlay for the altar. Right, so it wasn't just an idea. It actually happened. Line five. As a reminder for the children of Israel, so that no outsider who is not of the seed of Aaron shall approach to burn incense before the Lord, so as not to be like Korach and his company, as the Lord spoke regarding him. Right, now line five could support the idea, right, that in reality, right, it was a way of saying don't do what Korach did. But we're still then troubled by line, by line three, the end of line three, where it says, V'yu liot livnei Yisrael, shall, it shall be a sign for the children of Israel. And as I said, whenever you see the word oath, it's positive. Now don't take my word for it. Let me prove it to you, okay? Take a, learn, take a look at line eight. I'm sorry, page 8, source 6, Genesis chapter 9, lines 11 to 17. This is the story of the rainbow after the story of Noah and the flood, right? And the rainbow is given, why? What's the rainbow supposed to symbolize? That God will never bring a flood to destroy the world again. But it doesn't mean that God won't destroy the world. All it means is there won't be, you know, a flooding of so we can breathe a sigh of relief with that, but other things still have to trouble us. Okay, so be careful, right? All right, line 11, someone read for us. Let's have a new reader. I will establish my covenant with you, and never again will all flesh be cut off by the flood waters, and therefore will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. Continue. Uh, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant, which I am placing between me and between you, and between every living soul that is with you for everlasting generations. Right, so we identify the rainbow as a sign, right? An oat. I underlined it in both places. Just read one more line, line 13. I have placed in the clouds, 
and it will be for a sign of a covenant between myself and the Lord. Right, so it's a covenant, in my view, definitely a positive covenant of this relationship between God and all of humanity, not like the later covenant that will go on between God and the Jewish people, and that the flood will never happen again. That's O1 that's positive. O2, source 7, page 9, top of the page, book of Exodus, chapter 31, lines 16 to 17. Let's have a new reader. This is, actually, better than have a new reader here, this is how Shabbat is a sign. I don't know if you know the tune, but I like to sing it because it's a song. Right, let's see if we can join me. I don't have the greatest voice in the world, but let's give it a try. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et ha-shabbat la-asot et ha-shabbat l'dorotam b'rit ha-olam ay-ay-ay b'ni u-vein b'nei Yisrael o-ti le-olam so in line 17, you see the word oat, and you see that that is a sign. Once again, Shabbat is a sign. It's a relationship of the covenant, the connection, the contractual agreement between God and the Jewish people. Right? So again, something very positive. Now, source eight, line nine. Let's have someone read this one for us. This is my covenant. Who should read? Go ahead. This is my covenant, which you shall observe between me and between you and between your seed after you, that every male among you be circumcised. And you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be as the sign of a covenant between me and between Right, so Brit Milah is a sign of the covenant. It's an oat. Generally positive. I'm not so how thrilled the baby is with it, or some of my converts who are adult men who've never been circumcised. That's really a statement. But at the end of the day, on a religious level, it's one of the most joyous occasions. Don't we have some new grandparents here? Is it a boy or a girl? girl. It's a girl? Boy or girl? Girl? All right, so that's much better. You don't have to cross your legs during a baby name. I will tell you what my son said. Yeah? Yeah, I, I, I remember when uh, I remember when uh, my uh, my eldest. Uh, it was only maybe I don't know a couple months into his life, like maybe he was, he was like three, four months. And uh, I used to be a congregational rabbi in those days, so we had a Shabbat bris in the synagogue. And in general, when people had a bris, I would say, you know, pick whoever you want. You know, it's, it's your choice. However, if you're going to pick, if you're having Shabbat bris. I get a lot to say about who you pick. Why? Because he's going to stay with me. The mall's going to stay with me. And if I have to spend an entire 24 hours with this guy, I want to make sure that I like him. So people nine times out of ten in those situations chose the same moel that we used on our two boys, right? So I'm playing on Friday afternoon with my son, and he's having a good time playing on the floor, no problems. Soon as Rabbi Truler, the mole, walks in, he lets out a cry that would just curdle milk. And I say to him, Rabbi Truler, he still hasn't forgiven you. He thinks you, he thinks you want more, okay? So there you go. All right, next one. Text 9, page 10, and we're going to sing this one as well. Right? This is the first paragraph of the Shema. The first paragraph of the Shema, the Vahavta paragraph. Let's hit it. We're doing great. 
Ve'avta et Adonai Elohecha Bechol levavcha Ubechol mashecha Ubechol meodecha Ve'ayu Advarim ha'ele Asher anochi Mitzavecha Hayom alivavecha Ve'shinan ta'am levanecha Ve'dibar ta'am Ve'shivdecha Ve'beitecha Ve'levdecha Ve'derech Ushach becha uvkumecha Ukshartam liot ayadecha Vahayulet totafot beinenecha Uchtavtam almzopetecha uvisharecha In the English, someone read for us, and you shall love the Lord. Your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. And you shall teach them to your children and speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk on the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for a totapot between your eyes. You shall inscribe them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Right, so what is the ot here? Totapot. Totapo, which we understand to be, it's a really, it's a weird word to translate. We don't really know how to translate it, but how do we treat that term? It's filling, right, it's filling. And it's specifically, it's interesting, it doesn't refer, um, it seems only to refer to the um, armed filling. It doesn't seem to be referring to the head filling, but I assume we can refer to both, even though it's specifically referring to the armed filling. By the way, side point here, um, this also explains why we don't wear tefillin on... Shabbat. Shabbat. Why? Because Shabbat is already a oat. It's a sign, so therefore you don't need to wear them um, on Shabbat or, for that matter, holidays, right? Cer or certain holidays. Great poetry. Great poetry, right. Anyway, once again, it's a positive. So I think I've definitively proven now that every time you see the word oat, it's a positive. So we now have to answer our question. What was possibly positive about what Korach did. And why did he have such important relatives come from him? And why were those relatives proud of his tradition? So on page 10, source 10, I have a picture there of the Mizbeach. The Mizbeach in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle, represents leadership. Represents leadership. And the fact that we iron out the Machtot, the fire sensors that Korah did this sin with, and we put them on the Mizbeach, is my, in my mind, in my suggestion is, to say that even though what Korah did in the end was problematic, there is something positive about what he did. And what is that? That from time to time, leadership needs to be critiqued. And where do you bring that critique? To the center of leadership. And we continue that tradition today. Turn the page. The shulchan, the table, where we make the center of activity in our synagogue experience, that is the symbol of leadership today. The mizbeach becomes the shulchan, becomes the table in the modern day synagogue. It is likened in Jewish literature to the mizbeach. That is the place that prayer is led from in your first photograph. That is the place where Torah is read from. By the way, that's a photograph of the women of the wall, so I'm 
showing my solidarity there a little bit as well. And the place where a Devar Torah, where a sermon is given from, is that table as well. And the place where announcements to the community are given is from that table as well. And that is the place that you bring your critique. And I'll go one step farther. While this might um, not be as well known, it's without a doubt true. In family leadership, where is the center of family leadership? The dining room table. And in Jewish literature, we very much liken the dining room table to the Mizbeach, because that's the place where we have Shabbat meals, holiday meals, where maybe we sit down as a family and we allocate our tzedakah. It's where we have our discussions of Torah. So when there is a critique that needs to be made in a family, in family leadership, it goes to the center of family leadership. Interesting side point, in medieval um, France, in the Jewish community there, um, you got buried in a coffin that was made from your dining room table. Why? That you should go before HaKadosh Baruch Hu, before God, at the end of your life, with all the merits that you achieved at that table, all the Shabbat dinners, all the holiday dinners, all those seders, all those times you were teaching your family Torah. Interesting question, who gets the table? Because who dies first? I think the person who put the food on the table deserves that. I'm not going to say who that is, because I don't want to be gender biased. But whoever did it, they get the table. And the other person has to survive with some other table. That's my take. The last one is my invention altogether, but I think it's true. I think the boardroom table in a synagogue, or in a federation, or a JCC, or a Jewish organization, that is also very comparable to the Mizbeach, as that's the representation of Jewish communal, communal leadership. And sometimes that Jewish communal leadership needs to be critiqued. But there's a but, a very big but. I don't mean that anatomically, I mean that in conceptually. Take a look at source 14, and it's from Pirkei Avot, often called the, uh, the Ethics of Our Fathers. I like to call it the Ethic of Our Parents. Chapter 5, Mishnah 17, bottom source, page 12, source 14. Let's take a look. Any dispute that is for the sake of heaven is destined to endure. One that is not for the sake of heaven is not destined to, do, to endure. Which is a dispute that is for the sake of heaven? The disputes between Hillel and Shammai. I guess people are, I'm guessing people are familiar that Hillel and Shammai are rabbis in the Mishnah and they argue about everything, right? If Hillel says one thing, Shammai says the opposite. If Shammai says another thing, Hillel says the opposite. But they had the greatest respect for one another and their arguments were never about power. Their arguments were about who has the better idea and who can prove their point? I've spent a lifetime in yeshivot, in schools of higher Jewish learning, in a Beit Midrash, and never once did a study partner, did a chavruta of mine, say to me, I'm right because I'm more powerful than you. I'm right because I'm richer than you. I'm right because I'm more important to you. In the Beit Midrash, you have to prove you're right through logic. And the job 
of your study partner, of your chavruta, is to tear apart your argument. Because the only way your argument holds weight if it withstands them attempting to tear apart the argument. But then the text goes on. Which is a dispute that is not for the sake of heaven? The dispute of Korach and all of his company. Now, the question, of course, is what made Korach's argument not a dispute for the sake of heaven? Take a look at source 16, page 13. The second part of that, of, of that text. Korach took. This is the opening of Parsha Korach. Vaikach Korach. Korach took. Rashi understands that to mean he took himself to one side to dissociate himself from the congregation. When you make a machloket, l'shem shemaim, when you make an argument for the sake of heaven, you're not a separatist. You're very much a part of the community. You're doing it because you want to be part of the community, because you want to make the community better. You want to make the leader that you're critiquing better, and the leader should interpret in that way. But if you're taking yourself aside and separating from the community, then you're certainly not engaged in a machloket l'shem shemayim, an argument for the sake of heaven. The other key word is look to the bottom of that text. One, two, three, four lines from the body, bottom of that text. He envied the chieftainship. In other words, what was Korach so about? He was about envy. He wanted to be the leader. He wanted to be the macher. He wanted to be the president. He wanted to be the rabbi. He wanted to be the CEO. Call it what you want, because he wanted it. Not to make the Jewish community better. Not because of a connection to God. Last text, and then we're going to open it up. Page 14. There's a tradition, not a law, but a tradition in some synagogues, in some communities, that before we um, um, do the shofar blowing on Rosh Hashanah, we recite Psalm 47 seven times. The psalm itself has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. But it references at the beginning of the psalm what? For the conductor of the children of Korach, a song. The fact that we reference Korach's children at this moment, probably the most important moment of Rosh Hashanah, the symbol of the powerful experience of us being woken up by the shofar to do tshuva, to do repentance, I believe it's there to say to us, if you've ever engaged in a form of critique of Jewish communal leadership that was not for the that was not l'shem shemayim, that was not for the sake of heaven, this is the moment to do tshuva. And after shofar blowing, go over to that leader and say, I did the wrong thing. I made a thing to make a thing. I didn't do it to improve the community. Simultaneously, it raises our conscience that if there is critique to be brought to a leader who needs critique, as long as you're doing it with shame shamayim for the sake of heaven, then you absolutely should engage in that critique. Just to conclude, before I hear your thoughts, and I'm very anxious to hear your thoughts on this, um, I feel this is a very important topic for the Jewish community as a whole across the board. Because I feel on the one hand, 
We have so many examples on a professional and lay level across the board in the Jewish community where leadership sometimes gets out of control because there's not a communal critique. And that critique really needs to happen to keep that leadership in check. On the other hand, we have the opposite phenomenon too, where there is really a, a desire or a lack of desire to engage in Jewish leadership because sometimes that critique get degrades itself and turns into critique for the sake of critique about personalities and not really trying to improve the community. And specifically referring to the notion of separation, which was a big part that Rashi critiques Korach for. Have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed whenever there's a breakaway synagogue, that synagogue's name will always have the word shalom in it. Right? It will always, always, always have the word shalom in it. Temple shalom, temple best shalom, shari shalom, nitzivot shalom. If you see a shalom, you know that is a breakaway synagogue. In reality, they should probably call it the go to hell Jewish center or the, or the B'nai Korach, right? But nine times out of ten, there is a story of broikusness there, of breakup there. And I think we should really think about the fact that we choose to hide that and we don't really get behind the real narrative of what occurred in that communal story. Thank you very much. I'd like to take your questions or thoughts now. Let's go this way. Anyone over here? Please. Without a doubt. And um, the Korach and his followers were punished greatly, but that was maybe unfair because there was a value in questioning Moses' uh, leadership. Right. So that's a really interesting thing. In other words, if they're bringing such a positive point in spite of what was negative about them, couldn't have they you know, worked out a plea deal? Right? In other words, maybe they get punished, but they don't get executed. Right? So that's an interesting take. Um, I never did it um, with this text, but I think it was the first sermon I ever gave, or maybe the second sermon I ever gave when I was an assistant rabbi back in the day at the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale. Um, I did the same thing with the story of Nadav and Avihu, um, Aaron's sons who offer the Eish Zarah, the strange fire in the Mishkan, and they get executed, and my sense is, or not executed, they get burned alive. They're essentially become a sacrifice. So I actually made an attempt to act as their defense attorney in my sermon that morning and said, you know, if they would have had me, I would have gotten them off because even though they did something problematic, they did it for the right reasons. That's a whole other story, and if you bring me back, maybe I'll talk about that one. Uh, other thoughts or questions going this way? Okay, over here. And then up there. So we've been dancing around positive things that Korach brought up, but it certainly isn't developed in Rashi or any of the other texts. They're all about, I think, apologetics for what happened and demonizing uh, Korach. Um, the basic question that Korach asks is, who made you the leader? Um, there is, to me, echoes of what you were talking about yesterday with not having competition for, uh, for leadership among the uh, Israeli Jewish community, and maybe the American Jewish community, and lack of competition breeds complacency Correct. and lack of excellence. Correct. Um, when Korach is asking, who made you the leader, it's problematic because 
you can't really get into the discussion without speaking against God. But the basic question is, uh, is are we going to have a meritocracy here? Or are we going to have simply that you're going to be assigned and, uh, and we're not going to be developing that kind of um, yeah. uh, expertise in the community? Right. I think there's no question you're right about it. I think that's the big difference between their time and, and our times and even in between times. It's not a meritocracy. God chooses the people and, it, and it's objective. But that's over. And I think that's important to understand. No one is operating with the authority of God. It doesn't matter who they are. That's not Jewish theology in our world today, right? If someone says, God told me this, that's really considered heresy. That's a problem. So to be operating in that way is just not a Jewish tradition any longer. It was, but it no longer is. Let's go this way and we'll come. The problem is he was just too far ahead of his time. Maybe, or he was just wrong because of the issue of envy and not bringing in a, a machlok at l'shem shemaim. Let's go over here and then we'll come back. Oh, I'm sorry, you, you were, I'm sorry, I apologize. You're first, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I guess I see what Korach's doing is, is having two flaws. In it. I mean, one is um, he doesn't actually put forth any kind of argument about why he should be a leader or why someone else should Correct. be a And then, of course, there's the whole thing, which is the, the motivation for it, which is based on envy and... and in essence, you know, maybe some kind of power hunger kind of thing on his own behalf. But he doesn't even like to put forth a case about it, right. which which intrigued me. I mean, I was wondering if you have any sense about why it is that it just came out so blatantly as a direct challenge to something that, from our perspective, seems obvious. Uh, right. Here you have somebody who's appointed from God as your leader, and you go forward with a, maybe it should be me. Right. So, you know, to me, that says it all. And like, I see this today. Like, in other words, what I was alluding to in our world today, when you see um, a person in a Jewish communal setting, right, who's not for real in their critique, who's not substantive, nine times out of ten, they will be like Korach. In other words, they'll just say, I want to be the leader. I want to be the big guy. You know what I mean? They're nine times out of ten will not bring forward a point, a plan about what they would do differently. It's more just an attack for the sake of the attack against that leader. Well, and I think that's what's problematic. And, and I think it's not even so much that they, they say, I should be the guy. But what they do is they demonize the Correct. Person, right? They say, Correct. this is not the guy. Correct. And, they, and that's even uh, Correct. harder to swallow. Right. And by the way, I would say on two levels, it's important to emphasize. In my experience, I've seen this in, you know, with Jewish professionals lay people towards Jewish professionals, professionals towards other professionals, lay people towards lay people, and professionals towards lay people. It's like a real disease we have in the Jewish community, in my opinion. Someone over here now, and then we'll come back. Um, on page six. Page six, let me take a look. Go ahead. I can't, because they don't tell me about it. Yeah. You know, we just know that they did some kind of repentance. I, I, there's no other text. I look yeah, very... Whether it's a philosophical repentance or a physical repentance. I, I just don't know what they did. I mean, I couldn't find any other source that substantiated it. I just, we leave it to assume there's some kind of repentance. How does a Jew repent? Well, in general, I mean, it depends who you go by. They didn't have the benefit, obviously, of having the Rambam. But we have Maimonides, and Maimonides tells us in a very detailed way how you do repentance. So what you do is you identify your wrong, you apologize for it, you bring it directly to that person, and you admit what you did, and you make sure it never happens again. Can I tell you objectively that that's what they did? I can't. But all I know is there's some level of repentance here. I think probably in many ways Rashi is probably putting his times on their times. Over here. 
And we'll go to you. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I want to go back to the comment you made that um, it was in, it, it's difficult to understand how the fire incensors of the Korachians could become hammered out and become an oat. Right. But and you said the oat is always good. Right. But I think the oat is a sign of God intervening in reality to make a distinction. I can hear that. The only thing is I don't think that would fit with Brit Milah or with Tfilin. I do think it does. How does it make how does it make that distinction? Because when you are circumcised, then yeah. you become distinct from Oh, I see. All right, when you are wearing a tefillin, you become distinct. I got it. All right, very good. I like that take. That's another and take on it. It's good. When you think about the word kadosh, you know, it basically means to become distinct or separated from the the whole, you know, the, yeah. the everyday stuff. All right, it's a good take. I like it. And, oh. yeah, and, and I, I just feel like that's, it's these things are holy even though the people who belonged to them were condemned, right? But the act of making a distinction between them and the rest of the regardless of the person's behavior was done by God, and yeah. therefore it was holy. I like that. That's beautiful. Go ahead. There's something very strong Amish about this. Strong Amish? Yeah. You think? Yes. <laughs> it's something that God has tried, but He accepts Korah that on his terms, and paints him in his terms, and actually... Wait, how does he accept him back? I don't get that. Because he's in our tradition. Oh, you're and saying, okay, I got that. Okay. He's not like yeah, yeah. sponge, you know, right, right, right. fell into the earth. Right, 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 right. I got so what you're saying, yeah. Would, but it's on, it's on the terms of what is now accepted Judaism. Right. And it seems to me that it's a warning that that may be uh, actually damping the human spirit to say, like, you'd better not go too far in your critique. And at the time you're doing it, what is too far? Because how do you know that Korah really had the jealousy, was really questioning Moses? Moses did plenty to, of course, uh, have the people wary of him. And later on, they, I believe that later was the rebellion of the Golden Calf, that people were still rebelling and all right. that. But it's something like, it's a warning, and we see it really coming true in issues of today and in Jews standing up, uh, noticeably Jewish, for secular issues, huh. that they're punished for their stand. It's like, you know, you better not go too far to challenge the... The, the rock of our structure. Right. I think that's a great point. I think, though, the only thing we have to keep in mind is when we point out all these things about Korach, I mean, me and Rashi, for that matter, we're playing with the text, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Right? So, in other words, we're taking the text in a direction we want it to go in. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, it's like the old story, um, you know, there was this um, guy... Um, in front of um, a whole wall, like a, an outside wall of a barn, and there were targets up and down the wall, all with arrows right in the bullseye. And someone comes over to the guy and says to him, how do you get the bullseye every time? You're like the most extraordinary archer I've ever seen. Very simple. 
I shoot the arrow and then I draw the target around it, right? So that's what we do in Jewish tradition. We have a message and we want to bring the ball to the hoop, right? So we find a way to do it. Now, as long as we're intellectually honest about it, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Clearly, I want to teach a lesson in my time, so I see the story in that way. And clearly, Rashi wanted to teach a lesson, and he teaches the story in that way as well. I think it's completely fine to do that. I just think we need to be intellectually honest about it, and very much in the symbolism of the story, be open to other takes. So for example, Howard brought like what I thought is a really interesting take on the story. I don't think it lessens my take on the story. I think it only brings more to it. In other words, we can have multiple takes on one story. That's what we do as Jews. Are we at the end, or do we have a little more time? One more. One more. Go ahead. 250 seems to have a significance here. Where else does it appear? Oh, that's a great question. I would need to think about that more. I'll just tell my general thoughts about that. I can't speak specifically on 250, but I'll say whenever you see certain numbers in Torah and in Tanakh, I think it's meant to be hyperbole. Um, I think it's meant to say it's a lot. Right? And I think there are different numbers of a lot. A more popular one is 40. 40 seems to come up a lot in you know, Torah. I'll give you another one, because uh, this was supposed to come up on my um, lecture on, the great, on, on rock and roll and Judaism, specifically with the Grateful Dead. And we, didn't, we ran out of time for the Grateful Dead one, so I'll just bring this one up now. Um, the number, the recorded number um, of, um, I, I, I think, in, in later history, they, um, they lessened the number. But the um, official number that was put out at the time, I believe, of how many people at Woodstock was 600,000. Mm. Right. It le- I think it was actually lower. It was 400,000. But the figure that was put out there was 600,000. The figure at Watkins Glen, a concert that occurred a couple of years later, of this period of great outdoor concerts in the 60s and 70s, right, was also 600,000. Um, the Grateful Dead performed at both events. The number at Mount Sinai, 600,000. That's all I need to say. Clearly, the Grateful Dead is the representation of spirituality in Judaism, which is why I committed to myself to seeing them 200 times in concert. How many people at Trump's initiation? <laughs> you have to believe in alternative facts there. <laughs> All right, well, thank you very much. Thank you all for coming out and hanging out with David Cal. You can find him on the streets of New York converting people right and left. Usually he stands outside Grand Central handing out papers. I'm just joking. You can always find him in New York. <laughs>